0: Kia ora and welcome to Liberty Now. I'm your host, John Verd with Liberty Now On Air at 96.9 Plains FM in Christchurch and LibertyNow.com. Thank you for stopping by. I'll be here every Saturday at 10 p.m. looking at the headlines, asking questions, and talking to people who are making a difference. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes at Liberty Now On Air, and you can also get the links to Files and show notes for this episode at LibertyNow.com Today we're having a conversation with Brendan Malone about freedom of speech. Brendan is the director of LifeNet New Zealand. He has a background in communications and media training and has been working full-time in pro-life, marriage, and family ministry for the last 14 years, where he speaks at churches, universities, high schools, and conferences, on bioethics, sexuality issues throughout New Zealand and Australia. During that time, he has delivered over 500 presentations and spoken to more than 30,000 people. Many would consider freedom of expression to be the most basic human right. In truth, the right to life is more important because without that, all other rights are moot. However, assuming your life is not endangered at the moment, Free speech is otherwise one of our most important basic human rights. But is our speech actually free? In a very real sense, it has cost us dearly in the terms of those who've lost their lives before us, fighting for the freedoms that we enjoy now. And while we can rightly claim it as a human right, that doesn't mean that it can't and isn't being violated now. Brendan, I know you're really busy. Thank you very much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, John. Pleasure to be here. Let's start out with a little bit of your background. Brendan, um, tell me about your work right now, what you're focused on. Well,
1: I I really specialize in the whole area of ethics, and and I come at that from particularly from what you would probably call a a natural law or a a natural law Christian perspective on these issues. Um, I do a lot of work speaking at conferences and events around New Zealand and Australia. And more and more, because of the work that I do, I find myself – engaging with this question of freedom of expression, free speech, because uh, a lot of the topics I engage on, issues like abortion or maybe euthanasia, um, even pornography to a lesser degree, there is a there is a certain uh, politicisation around these issues that is becoming more and more intense. And there is definitely one side of those debates which would dearly love for a lot of these uh, voices to, to be silenced on these issues. And so it's, it's something that I find myself butting up uh, increasingly in the work that I do.
0: Yeah. Um, And and are you focused on anything uh, specifically right now? Um, I know we had talked a little bit about the uh, upcoming proposed legislation about hate speech. Is that a primary focus for you now?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, obviously that's big on the radar. There's another piece of legislation that I would actually call a sister piece of legislation to that, that has come from uh, a Labour MP, which has proposing to implement what uh, she's calling safe areas, very euphemistic name, uh, outside of all New Zealand abortion clinics. And these safe areas, uh, they sound, initially sounds very appealing, that, 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 you know, this idea of a safe area, but what they really want to do, what the legislation actually wants to do is it will be a criminal offence to communicate, that's the wording of the bill, communicate any opinion about abortion within 150 metres of any New Zealand abortion clinic. And so, as you can imagine, that's that's a very serious removal of things like the right to freedom of assembly, the right to peaceful uh, assembly in New Zealand, the right to freedom of association, the right to freedom of expression. So that's a that's another big issue that's on the radar at the moment.
0: Yeah, um, it does seem kind of like a one way street. Um, You know, I I think if it were the other way around, uh, protesters would have no problem or um, obstacles.
1: Well, it's kind of ironic, too, because you think about the, the political left and the political left were the sort of was and certainly touted itself as being like the bastion of free speech through the 60s in particular. That yeah. was sort of it was there. It was their baby, but now they've they've absolutely turned on it. And now that uh, I think they find themselves in a position of perhaps ascendancy, they would much rather that the, the descending voices just are silenced.
0: It is interesting. It seems like we're it, it has. Turned itself on its head, and it's the only speech that is allowed is is their speech. It, mm. I mean, I, I think we all agree that the majority of mainstream media, corporate media, is has uh, very much left bias, and it's they they call it liberal. Mm. Although I I would take issue with that. Um, I would say neoliberal. Maybe the the definition itself seems to have been changed. I would consider myself a classical liberal. You know, live and let live. Um, and although i'm a christian i don't believe in enforcing that viewpoint on anybody i, I think yeah. the whole point is that again it's a freedom of choice issue yeah. whether to to believe in that or not but it it seems very one sided in most of the media would you agree
1: oh look absolutely i i think you're right about that there's i mean it raises an interesting question that that, that sort of those enlightenment values that were the sort of the liberal project have now very much been abandoned by those who are on the progressive left. And in fact, many on the left now, I guess this is what we'd call woke culture, really, have embraced a very, right. not just authoritarian, but totalitarian. It's not just, we don't want you saying things, but you we will tell you how to speak now about issues. And so that's a different proposition altogether. And, and, and the bigger question all of that raises is, was the, I guess, the liberal project, was it always... Um, doomed to, to a certain failure? Was it going to be a victim of its own success? In fact, there's been some great academics who've written books about this of late. You know, uh, I think of a guy like Patrick J. Deenan, who wrote a book, Why Liberalism Failed. And he's a guy who says, look, there's plenty of good things about it. But one of the things is it actually becomes a victim of its own success, in a sense, because it creates a, a sort of a vacuum, if you like, of radical individualism. And then people take power within that vacuum. And, and we're probably seeing a
0: lot of right. that right now. You know, we'll tell you what to say. To me, a lot of this comes down to, is it is it better to to give a man a fish or teach him how to fish? And, you know, are people able to, you know, take care of themselves and make decisions for themselves? Or do we need uh, to legislate that? Do we need a nanny state to tell you what's best or what to think? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's a,
1: that's a good point. It's an interesting question, I think. And what I see happening really at the moment, I see is that, there is definitely this um, authoritarian and totalitarian and some places push that's coming from one side. And the reaction tends to be to say, well, the answer to that is uh, probably most obvious. Uh, often this would be played out as uh, you know a, a Marxist vision of reality trying to impose itself. And so people say that the, the answer to Marxism or communism or cultural Marxism, whatever form it's manifesting, is some form of individualism. And Right. my position, I'm very much from the Burkean conservative mold as an Edmund Burke. And, and from that perspective, I would say that I think that there's a third way that's being forgotten about here. And that that is, that is a model which says that it's a mix. The answer to this sort of Marxist collectivism is not necessarily individualism, but rather it's a, it's a communal society where we say there are times where there are legitimate human freedoms, which must always be respected. And there are times where we should operate communally. And, and so that, you know, that you don't throw out one or the other. But most importantly of all, there are these legitimate human freedoms. And the most important one have all been the freedom of conscience, and that you should right. never be compelled, you should never be forced against conscience to participate, perhaps in the moral actions of another, or you should, you know that, that dialogue should never be silenced. Because How can you have authentic community if you're not allowed to even dialogue honestly with each other?
0: Right, uh, which brings us to another topic Uh, along the lines of freedom, not just freedom of speech, but um, freedom of of action and thought. I heard a a quote recently that really struck me, and I've been thinking about it a lot lately, is you can have either freedom or you can have equality, but not both. In a free society, people... Are going to tend to do what they will do freely and make their own decisions, and there will always be um, unequal outcomes because people have, you know, different abilities, talents, and um, you know, resources. Um, whereas if you try to force a level playing field where you have equality of outcomes, which seems to be the theme or or the ideology of the left is, you know, we have to make things fair for everybody. And we see this manifested in so many different ways, like, um, you know, we, we don't award first place in sporting events, you know, everybody gets a trophy, mm. that sort of thing. I'm starting to sort of think that it, they're sort of mutually exclusive. Would you agree? I mean, you can either have freedom or you can have equality. What do you well, think? Well, I think,
1: yeah, it's an interesting point, I, and I think that's a pretty good summation of what's happened is this idea of really, I should say, a quality of outcomes. Is, and you've said that. That's the, that's the what they are pushing for. And in a sense, they're pushing back against a tendency that you might call um, perhaps a, a Nietzschean, as in Frederick Nietzsche's sort of will to power, the strong man dominates. And so they want to push back. And rightly so. I think that's a good instinct because, you know, the, the strong dominating the weak is not actually good either. But, The point is that they're pushing back in a way that is actually just as disastrous, ultimately, because, as you've rightly said, you can never have a quality of outcome. There's lots of reasons why someone is not going to achieve the same outcome as the person next to them that have nothing to do with any sort of injustice within society. It's maybe it's just natural ability or lack of. Maybe it's just natural desire. You just maybe someone's lazy and someone's really hard working. It's just all of those things. And so when you try and enforce an equality of outcomes, you've got to achieve that by interfering and completely rearranging with the very fabric of society. And ironically, you actually start introducing injustice into the mix. And I think this is something for me, again, if I go back to my sort of Burkean and conservative approach to things, one of the things that Burke was always very big on was this idea. And in fact, Alexei de Tocqueville, when he toured America and saw the American democracy for the first time, he wrote about this as well. He talked about the fact that this will only succeed as long as your other institutions in society remain strong. So family, churches, you know, there's actually community away from the government, away from the state, and also as long as there is a culture of virtue present in the life of ordinary citizens. And once that goes, You know, that's that's what costs you justice. And so the state, no matter how much it might try to enforce an equality of outcome, it can never replace individual citizens who are not practicing virtue, who don't have a good moral life, who don't have a good life of aspiration and things that the state can't give to them. The state can never make up for that. So you just end up with injustice in this force for
0: equality of outcome. If you're just tuning in, this is John Verd on Liberty Now On Air on 96.9 Plains FM in Christchurch. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes at Liberty Now On Air. You can also get the links, files, and show notes for this episode at libertynow.com. State can
1: never make up for that. So you just end up with injustice in this force for equality of outcome.
0: Right. And I yeah, I'm a believer in, you know, um, the right to choose, you know, um, when it, w- with regard to yourself, you know, um, of course, when you use that term, people are going to automatically start thinking about, you know, abortion rights and all that. <laughs> and and I won't bring it into this conversation because that's um, a deep rabbit hole. But um, when we, we talk about, you know, our our personal decisions that involve our interactions with with other people. I think you can only uh, create laws against or preventing bad behavior but you can't legislate good behavior because then you're you're forced into trying to make a decision about what is good behavior and and what is the common good the, a, a bigger question that maybe you'd like to touch on you know is is there a a common absolute good for everybody it it seems as though the the left you know, extreme left would believe in this this utopian uh, world where, you know, perfection is, is achievable by man. And I just, you know, would disagree with that. I, I don't think that's possible. Um, and I think we could present lots of arguments. Why not? Would you agree that, that we can't legislate, um, you know, good behavior, but only um, when bad behavior has taken place? Well, I think in a sense, though, ironically,
1: when you do legislate around moral behaviours, evil behaviours, harmful behaviours, you are in a sense legislating for the good. And that in that, I, I think I think any law really the equation that lawmakers have to grapple with is what goods are worth having and at what price. And okay. so what that might mean is I'll give you an example. So when we talk about free speech, uh, look, I, I think you and I had both been in agreement. We'd really love to live and operate in a society where the good of, of tolerant, civil, charitable discourse is just the norm, where people talk to each other and disagree strongly, but do it with absolute charity and no venom, no ju- injustice, no violence and all that kind of stuff. However, the reality of the world is that human beings are frail and, and you know, people say mean things to each other, or their speech is not as nice and kind as it, it could be, or should be if they want to be a virtuous person. But the problem then becomes, so that's a good we want, but at what price? And the moment you say, well, well, let's legislate, let's use a law to fix that problem, is the moment you are now saying you're willing to pay a price, I think it's far too high to try to secure that good. Because using the law, an analogy I use in this situation is, imagine you went to your doctor and he said, well, I want to perform some keyhole, delicate keyhole surgery, and then he pulled out a chainsaw. And you said, well, what's that (laughs) for? And he says, well, I'm about to make the incision now you'd straight away, you'd say, no, thanks, because you'd recognise that, yes, that chainsaw can make an incision, just like a a law could start policing speech, but it will do much more damage and in the long run. And overall, it's the wrong tool for the job. It does more harm than it does good. And, And that's the reality of policing speech. And so with lawmaking, the question has to be, well, what goods are worth having? What evils do we reject? What goods do we protect? And at what cost? So how do we uh, how are we proportionate in the way that we craft our laws? Now you're right. The problem is so. I is that I go back to that Burkean tradition. I think very much in the mould of the Christian conception of the natural uh, of the natural law and of of the common good, which is very much uh, ironically based in a lot of the sort of the um, Aristotelian, Aristotle's sort of vision of, of of natural ethics as well. That's quite yes. important in that mix. And so it's not just a Christian thing. But the thing about the Christian concept of the common good is that it, it always understood something that the secular, particularly the Marxist vision of the common good doesn't, and that it understood that the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every human being and that human beings always have a tendency towards evil that has to be fought against hard. And what Marxism sort of abandons is it it, it abandons that concept. It rejects everything that was good, if you like, about the Christian vision of, of, of community and the common good. And instead, it tries to build it on a purely secular basis which leaves you with a situation where you fail to recognize the true nature of humanity i think and it creates this problem where injustice quickly comes in as people say well we'll build this utopia and if you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet and we have to arrest John and put him in prison, well that's the price to pay. And and that's that's a real right. problem.
0: Right. That's one of those core again comes down to a lot of these very simple core concepts mm. where um you know the end justifies the means, right? Uh, at any yeah. cost. That's right. Um as long as we achieve this this greater good that, that we see as a greater good, but may not necessarily be in the best interest of, you know, certain individuals. I think it really comes down to the some of those very, very core concepts. Well and, John, and can
1: I can it. I can I also say too, it's it's even often it's framed by those on the other side as being about oh, a group of individuals who who just want to have their individual way. But really what's at stake is more than just an individual who might want to say some things. It's also about the rights of the community to hear what that individual was saying, their right to hear all the information yes. is harmed. It's the right of the community to have community without fear of being imprisoned, all those kinds of things. so it really affects all of us.
0: Yeah, in fact, you just reminded me of uh, an Orwell quote. In fact, I'm thinking about putting this on a t-shirt. Uh, George Orwell of 1984 fame said that if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to say things that other people do not want to hear. Yes, yeah, that's right. And that sounds that could be taken offensively. You know, I think especially for somebody <laughs> who believes in safe spaces and uh, plugging your ears to anything that might potentially be offensive, but that's the world. Well, it's, it's the problem,
1: too, is what the what the cultural Marxist and, and they're very much that critical theory underpinnings to that. What they've done is they've turned speech itself into an act of violence. And, and once right. you do that, then saying something disagreeable like you and I, it's just a disagreement. But right. For someone who believes the lie, this false vision of reality that speech is violence, they're now the victims in their minds of a violent act. And rightly if that was true, so if I was assaulting someone, it would be right to stop that with the law. But that's not what's happening. But their vision of reality has has created a a, a false vision of, of reality, a, a falsehood. And and that unfortunately right. leads to that.
0: It's sort of a, a, a preemptive approach. I, even politicians, I mean, like from the very top legislators in washington, d c. saying that uh, anything Trump said was actual terrorism or violence because he might incite action as if people don't have control of their own actions. right? Yeah. So based on, you know, the radicalization. So rather than allow people to make their own decisions or be held accountable for their actions that we can legislate or, you know, punish by law, we can't even say the things that might be construed to incite action. Well, well, it's
1: interesting that it? because the the question then becomes, um, what what exactly is the action you're trying to stop from being incited? Because there are clear, we already have laws very clearly around this here right. in the United right. States. Where if you if you use criminal your speech for criminal purposes, so if I'm harassing an ex partner of mine with speech, that's a criminal offence and rightly so. If I use speech to incite a riot, I've clearly done something that's actual inciting. But what's happened now is that it's become so vague and and it's like, well, it we'll stop extremism by stopping all conversation about a particular issue because we deem even the conversation to be a form of extremism and injustice. And and whereas you guys, you and I would say, Well no, that's not true at all. It's it's it, it becomes extremism when it actually falls into extremism, not just because you call it extremism.
0: Correct. Right. And again, it comes to you know definitions. And you had said something earlier about you know applying the chainsaw of law <laughs> to do something that might, would be much more um, better done with precision and a scalpel. And it's hard to do that when when we go to write laws. I think there's you know the the whole principle of unintended consequences, right. and we we can't predict. All the possible outcomes from an action, you know, something that we put on paper as law. And so I think therein lies a big part of the problem. The best intentions end up going astray. And there was a a book I often refer back to. I don't know if you've read it called Freakonomics. Yes, I know of the book by Malcolm Gladwell. And they talk a lot about that. And I think it's, it's a great book. Um, everything comes down to economics in one form or another. You know, whether it's um, the exchange of ideas or money, um, it's it's all about um, what what you intend to do. Um, and when you when you propose a law or a rule, what what are the outcomes of that? And he he gave an example of his uh, little daughter. They're potty training her, and they, in order to reward her for uh, the good behavior they wanted of you know using the toilet they would give her M&Ms or a little piece of candy. And what they found was that she had to go to the potty all the time, whether she needed to or not, because <laughs> yeah, she wanted yeah, the smart. reward. Yeah. And I, I think we see that a lot in the, in a lot of the new laws being created all the time. I think it is headed towards, you know, I I keep referring back to, you know, sort of an Orwellian dystopic future but you know the the way things are going it-
1: well well it's even the the like you, that's unintended consequences but I think there's also things we can point to where we can say well if you just stopped and thought about this properly you'd realize this was always going to be an outcome of a particular law so or a particular yeah. process that you enact so the moment the police become involved in policing anything I think a lot of people have this wrong idea that the police have this sort of um, interpretive power that's given to them to decide whether or not someone should be arrested or prosecuted or any of those kinds of things. They, they, they actually are not. They've got to follow the letter of the law. So the law becomes a very blunt instrument. So if John is accused of, of hate speech and someone turns up to your house or looks through your social media feeds or whatever it might be, they don't have the luxury as an officer of the law of saying, well, how do I interpret this? They have to say, what does the code of the law say? Yep, he's he's failed, bang, bang, bang. And when when it's speech, it's so very tenuous. You yes. know, when you start talking about offence and emotional harm, it just becomes and, and so what then happens is we know police will always and rightly so err on the side of caution. You know, right. and, and, and and so what happens is it becomes this blunt instrument. It's not a scalpel. They have to arrest you. You have to be charged. You have to and all of that does serious harm. Even if you get acquitted at the end of that process, it should have never. there's places where the state does not belong, and inside your conscience and inside your words, is not one of those places where they should be.
0: Do you have any stories or examples that you would point to of you know how how that could be a bad outcome? Maybe um, in England, it seems to be particular particularly yeah. bad issue, um, yeah. you know, w- with like Tommy Robinson or do you, do you yeah, have any examples? Yeah,
1: yeah. So there was there was Count Dankula, the incident with his dog, which was an absolutely absurd parody. And it doesn't matter whether you agree or disagree with the joke that he got his uh, right. girlfriend's hug to make that it landed him in court and could have he could have faced jail time. It's very serious through a whole criminal procedure um, just over a silly joke. Um, it, it, I say to people, people say, oh, well, but it was a joke about the Holocaust. And I say, yes, but imagine if you I don't know, imagine your 14 or 15 year old son made a joke like that. Do you think they should be hauled before the courts for that? And most people at that point realize, oh, no, that is a bit of an overreaction, isn't it? it and is. so um, so that was one. There's you right that I think the policing units in parts of England, which are now actively and, and trolling people's social media and telling them we're, we're keeping an eye on your social media. I think, well. Where are all these police resources coming from that are not going to, like, knife crime, for example, and other serious issues in in England? We've got a case right now that's happening in Finland that's just come into the news in the last couple of days. A Finnish MP and a Finnish Lutheran minister are both being charged with hate speech. They face the possibility of six years in jail each for their crimes, quote-unquote, for a book that they published on the Christian view on marriage and sexuality during the pre- lead up to the gay marriage debate in Finland back in 2004, so they're being right. they're being investigated and charged uh, for events that happened uh, you know almost 20 years ago, over 15 years ago, and, wow. and 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 that's it's pure speech. So it's it's tweets and statements they've made in in uh, in an interview or in a um in a booklet. And it was all the booklet was doing was saying this is what the Christian view of these issues is. Now it doesn't matter whether you agree or disagree with the Christian view, right. T- to to claim that A, that would be appropriate, and B that even more worse so I think retroactively targeting people with yeah. the new law, That's shocking. Wow. I,
0: yeah, if, if that kind of thing doesn't wake people up, even the most hardcore leftist, you know, utopian thinkers mm-hmm. can't see that this leads to a bad place for all of us. Yeah. Um, I, well that you know, and that
1: beast, that beast does not stop. It's a hungry beast. It's ravenous. And it won't stop with the people you dislike. It will eventually turn and go, oh, there's a whole lot of food right behind me. I'm quite keen to devour that now. And that's how this always works
0: out. Excellent words. Excellent advice. And Brendan, just uh, on a personal level, what what sort of books have inspired you? Do you have any uh, recommended reading? Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah. look, I try and read a
1: book every month or two. I've been a bit slack lately. But um, yeah, there's been some, look, what I've been inspired by lately, I I really enjoyed um, Dominion by Tom Holland, which actually, it's a recent book, he's a secular historian. But he wrote a book really about the, the history of the West that he realized that the Western world was nothing like the ancient pagan Greeks or Romans, or there's these huge differences in the way we see the reality in the human person. He's like, why is that? And and that put him on the study of realizing, well, it's, it's the Christian history of the West that makes us different, the way we think about the world. So that, yeah. that's a great book. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed Douglas Murray's book, The Strange Death of Europe. Um, okay. which explores the question of Islam and some of the issues that were going on with open border policies a couple of years ago. And oh, yeah. he really talks about well, what 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 is the cost been of all of that? Um, and I think um, as well that uh, Larry Sidentop wrote a great book called Inventing the Individual, The Origins
0: of Western Liberalism. Brendan, how can people get a hold of you and uh, help support your work? Well, look, we're uh, one thing that I've I've launched uh,
1: last year was something called Monday Monday Night Live. It's a uh, a new sort of independent New Zealand media venture, if you like. It's a it's a video podcast. We've got a uh, most Monday nights we we have a live stream, and then we also have a YouTube channel with all of the content available there as well. And I interview a different guest each week, or we have uh, the panel, which is myself, uh, National MP uh, Simon O'Connor, and Elliot O'Keeley. Uh, who used to be with the New Conservatives. And the three of us just talk about current affairs. And so, uh, you know, you can find that at at, uh, uh, mondaynightliveshow.com. So mondaynightliveshow.com. That'll take you directly to our YouTube channel and all the interviews are there. And some great people I've interviewed – like Professor Robert George from Princeton University, and uh, a guy called Desh Amelia, who's a atheist documentary filmmaker who made a documentary that was released earlier this year called uh, "Better Left Unsaid" about political violence on the left. And there's lots of great content on there, local and and abroad as well. Oh, that's awesome! Thank you very much. Very no good worries. content. Oh, look, it's great. It was great to be on. Thanks, John, for having me.